chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. Therefore, holy brothers, who share in the, holy call, in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, the apostle and high priest, whom we confess. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all of God's house. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, testifying to what would be said in the future. But Christ is faithful as a son over God's house, and we are his house if we hold on to our courage and the hope of which we boast. So, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the desert where your fathers tested and tried me and for 40 years saw what I did. That is why I was angry with that generation, and I said their hearts are always going astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared an oath in my anger, they shall not enter into my rest. See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly till the end of the, of the confidence we had at first. As it has been said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. This morning, we're going to begin Philippians, and we're going to cover two verses. And I selected the text that Dory just read because it emphasizes that Jesus Christ is the one who made the church. And because the maker of the church is Jesus, what we have is greater than what the children of Israel had in the law. It was mediated through a servant. But what we have comes directly through God's Son, Jesus Christ. And so Hebrews warns us, don't turn away from it. The focus of my message this morning is going to be on Philippians, and it will say what we actually have, what Jesus has made for us. And you find in the space of two short verses that Paul mentions Jesus Christ three times and says that the Lord Jesus does three different things for us. But before I I go there, I want to actually give you a big picture of Philippians as a whole and explain a little bit why I decided this would be a fitting book to go to after Habakkuk. And to do that, I want to remind you of two people. First, as, as we were singing that hymn by Fanny Crosby just a few moments ago, Fanny Crosby 
is a fantastic example of someone who has incredible joy even though she was blind. Even though she had a very difficult life, she wrote hymns that we sing to this day that are an encouragement to all of us. And so since we sang that, I just wanted to mention her. But the example that I, that I really had in mind this morning was the sister of Corey Tinboom. Many of you would recognize and remember Corey's name. She's the woman who survived the Ravensbrück concentration camp in Germany. She had a naturally skeptical attitude that bordered on cynicism. Corey was honest about her utter amazement that God continued to prove himself to her through the worst horrors of World War II. And if you don't know much about her, I would encourage you to read The Hiding Place, where she tells her story. It's an incredible book. And I had read it in the past, and I was reviewing it for, for this, and saw it through fresh eyes and thought, this, this is even better than I remember it. So if you've read it in the past, I would encourage you to read it again. The thing I appreciate about Corey is that she is honest about what she thought and how she questioned God. She didn't start with big faith that could move mountains. But you watch her grow as you read her story. And as you read about some of the horrible things she endured, people being stuffed into train cars and moved all over Germany with no sanitation, forced to march miles, barely any food. But I'm actually mentioning Corey and her, I think, very natural cynicism and struggle because I would like to focus on her sister, Betsy. As you read Corey's story, and I, I do wonder if, if Betsy had been there when Corey wrote it down, what she would have said and thought about how Corey wrote it down. But as you read Corey's recount of it, Betsy is sort of like the white angel that's on her shoulder saying, Corey, this is what's right. Corey, this is what's true. And Betsy has this natural, joyful disposition that just continues to shock Corey all the way through everything they endured. In Corey's words, Betsy was the kind of person who could make a party out of three potatoes and some twice-used tea leaves. She reminded her that they needed to thank God even for the fleas in their barracks. And when she said that, Corey, with her typical, somewhat cynical disposition, said what I think all of us would have said and said, you're crazy, and there's no way I'm thanking God for fleas. Corey and Betsy had miraculously managed to smuggle a Bible into the camp, and Corey gives some details about how God enabled them to keep it everywhere they went through checkpoints and strip searches. And God made sure that they had his word and they ministered to everyone. They read from it regularly. And Corey recounted that it was there in that concentration camp that the word of God came alive to her. She had grown up with a father who faithfully read the word of God every single day to the family. 
They have the devotions that, that this is in my mind as a dad that I want to have at my home, that I, I feel like his joy and love for the scriptures taught his kids. And yet, as you're familiar with something, sometimes you look at it so often and it becomes so familiar, you're almost blind to it. And Corey said it was in that concentration camp that the word of God really came alive to her. And I'll give you one example specific. She one day had the realization that they were given weekly medical examinations where they were forced to strip down no clothing at all and stand in lines, all of the women in the camp, and march through to have doctors check their lungs and check their hearing and see if they had fevers. And she said it was just absolutely dehumanizing and humiliating. And one day standing in line, it hit her that Jesus was stripped naked and crucified for her. And she understood, because of her horrible experience, what the Lord Jesus had endured for her and for us. And she told that to Betsy. And she said, Betsy, Jesus did this for us. And Betsy immediately took it a step further and said, Oh, Corey, I've never thanked him for that. And she moved from something that was true to recognizing that she knew the Lord Jesus and could praise him for it immediately and was sad that she hadn't been praising him for it because she hadn't realized it before. That was the depth of Betsy's love and affection. And then one day, Betsy found out that the fleas that she had been thanking God for while Corey insisted that she was nuts, had actually been the very reason that the guards had left them alone in their barracks so that they had freedom to read the Scriptures and to pray and to encourage each other. Betsy's faith was shown to be well-placed again and again, even as her body grew weaker and weaker. Corey said that her sister had always been anemic. Even before the war, when food was plentiful, she was the physically weaker of the two sisters. And Corey watched as they endured the hardships of Ravensbrook. She watched her sister slowly fade, and eventually she died there. She, like the Apostle Paul, could sing... As she grew weaker, as she endured beatings. And I hold her up today because I believe she is an example of someone like the Apostle Paul. She is an example of someone like the prophet Habakkuk. They endure things that are unbelievable. And yet they do it with an attitude of thankfulness to God and a joy that can only be described as supernatural. Corey is easier to identify with because what Betsy had isn't natural. And yet, I mention both of them today because my hope is that we'll recognize, like Corey, we can grow in the joy that Betsy had. By the end of the story, Corey exhibits the exact same joy that her sister Betsy had. 
And in the foreword to the, the recent edition that I just purchased, there was a guy that gave his testimony that said he went to a Holocaust memorial where they had several people standing up and tell their survivor stories. And he said that there was an old, frail man who spoke right ahead of Corey. And the, the things that he said were just terrible and unbelievable. And you could see that years later, he still bore the scars. His hands still shook. He still had eyes that were fearful. And then he said as he sat down and Corey stood up, all of the things that Corey said were the exact same except the way she said them was with incredible joy. And the difference in the person was so remarkable. And I believe that God changed Corey in part through her sister. And my hope for us today, we've come through Habakkuk, a book that has many horrible things and yet at the same time, helps us appreciate God's great justice and holiness and also the possibility for joy in the midst of suffering. Now we're turning to Philippians. And Philippians is a book that shows that this joy should be part of our everyday New Testament believer experience. Fifteen times throughout this book, Paul mentions joy or rejoicing and gladness. He opens it saying, I thank my God and all my remembrances of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. He begins with praise. And why, why is he praising the Lord? Because the Philippians showed that their faith was genuine by helping him continue to minister the gospel. They supported him financially. And so he said, as I think of you, I naturally praise God with joy because I know you believed the gospel and I saw that you wanted to contribute to it immediately. So Paul begins with praise and joy because of the faith of the Philippians. Later on, as Paul is talking about the uncertainty of whether he will live or die, he writes this, writes this small letter from prison and he says or really rather rather from a he's under house arrest paul says that he will remain in this life to minister to the philippians for their progress and joy in the faith implying that if you are maturing and growing as a believer your joy will also grow he demonstrates that his joy grows as he sees believers maturing he says complete my joy by being of the same mind. So he expects their joy to grow. And as their joy grows, his joy grows. He says that these believers that are in Philippi are his joy and crown. He urges them to welcome faithful servants of God with joy. When Paul talks about other preachers, even people that he says are preaching the Lord Jesus Christ so that they can personally benefit from it, he rejoices that Christ is proclaimed even by people who have wrong motives. Sometimes, in, in, I'll be with other pastors and we'll maybe talk about other prominent preachers. And the, the big question is, as soon as someone finds out that I'm a pastor, they ask me, who do you think, you know, what do you think of so-and-so? 
And they'll name some figure, and I immediately have a reaction. Sometimes it's a good reaction. Sometimes it's a reaction I try to hide. Paul, so long as the gospel is being preached, consistently has a joyful reaction. He says, you know what? I could criticize this or that about him, but Jesus Christ is being preached. That's all I care about. He rejoices that Christ is proclaimed. And when as a prisoner he writes about the possibility of his own execution, he is glad and rejoicing, and then he urges the church to be glad and rejoice with him. He writes that he wants them to rejoice like he does. He says, finally, brothers, rejoice in the Lord. And then he writes two more chapters. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. And then as he closes the book, Paul rejoices that they continued to support his ministry just like they did at the beginning. And if you want a very rough outline for Philippians, you can see that Paul uses really four examples of people who obey, who suffer, and who maintain their joy as they follow the Lord Jesus Christ. He sets himself up as an example in chapter 1 and chapter 3. He talks about Jesus Christ in chapter 2 as an example of that incredible humility. And then the third and fourth examples are Timothy and Epaphroditus. After talking about the Lord Jesus Christ, he says, these two men are also faithful servants. Both of them, and Epaphroditus in particular, suffers as he serves the Lord and yet maintains his obedience and the example of Christian leadership by being faithful. And all of this suffering comes with these 15 references or exhortations to joy and rejoicing. And it's my prayer for our time as a church in Philippians that we would grow in joy as we grow in faith. And I would urge you to, along with me, learn from these examples and commit to walking in obedience now as we begin this book, expecting that the Lord will speak to us and challenge us. This morning, in the time we have left, I do want to look at the first two verses. And I believe that we need to realize that all of this joy is possible through Jesus Christ in the church. And when I say in the church, I mean in our church, and I mean in every church. It's very easy when you talk about the church to just have a very general idea of people who believe in God. And the more specifically you think about those people the harder it is to recognize that joy is possible in the church. And so I say that it's possible in this church, even though some of us are kind of hard to get along with from time to time. And I say it's possible in every church because we are all baptized into the same spirit and we have the same Father and we worship the same Lord. And so I want to stress that what is possible in the Philippian church is possible here, and that you need to be part of the church to experience this joy, and that it's only available through Jesus Christ. 
recognize that as these two verses show at the beginning of Philippians, Jesus Christ is the founder of the church. So last week I talked about the Spirit planting the Philippian church, but the Spirit, if you look at Acts 16.7, I barely mentioned it as we moved by, it's this, the Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus. And as we, as we begin this morning, I want to see three things here. That Jesus sends his servants to build the church. That Jesus makes sinners into saints to compose the church. And that this is all because we receive grace and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. All of the joy that this letter talks about is directly from the Lord Jesus. We first receive his grace And it is fitting that that grace be turned to praise and directed back towards Jesus Christ. So this morning, read with me as I just read the first two verses here. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's easy, as we begin any of Paul's letters, if you're familiar with them, to, in a sense, almost skip past the introduction because they're so similar. And so we want to get to the heart of the letter and see what he's going to say. And yet, in these two verses, I believe we find the foundation for the rest of the letter. He begins, and he mentions himself and Timothy the writers who are servants of Jesus Christ. Paul and Timothy introduce themselves as bond servants or bond slaves of Jesus. And that term bond slave is a loaded term. It speaks of both humility and it speaks of authority. Humility because bond servants surrender their will to the master completely. And yet it also speaks of authority because of who their master is. So in the Old Testament, you find that the servant of the Lord is someone who speaks for God. He must be treated with respect and obeyed because he represents the master. But the way that Paul wields this authority that comes from serving God as one who speaks for the master is something that Jesus himself modeled. He doesn't show up in the church and say, I am a servant of the Lord, do all these things. There are times that he teaches with that kind of authority, and yet the servant servant behavior is something that he learned directly from the Lord. Jesus said, the greatest among you is the one who serves. And he showed that when he took a towel and washed the feet of his disciples. And Paul demonstrates that consistent ability to put others before himself, and he demonstrates that all good Christians must do it, particularly those who lead. So his service to Jesus Christ demonstrates that he is obediently like Jesus Christ in his service. So it's a loaded term demonstrating both humility and authority. And that's partly why he's writing this letter, because he is continuing to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. The saints at Philippi have helped him, and he's writing to thank them and to encourage them. 
And so let's turn and look at the readers of this letter. And you can see them in the second half of verse 1 here. Paul writes, To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Paul writes this letter probably about 10 years after Acts chapter 16, which we looked at last week. So you can imagine that the Philippian jailer might have a touch of arthritis now. Lydia's hair might be a little bit grayer. And the church has grown. And the church has leadership. He addresses the entire church as saints. And in the New Testament, the term means someone who has been made pure, cleansed from sin. The word was taken from secular Greek, where it meant someone who, in a pagan religion, was able to appear before God, or who would be used of things that were dedicated to God's service. And if you dedicate something to God's service, you have to purify it. So it's very fitting that Christians took this word and used it of all of those who have been purified by the blood of Christ and who are dedicated to his service. That's true not just of leaders, but of everyone in the church. Because our sins have been forgiven, we are pure before the Father. And then within the saints, Paul actually addresses two subgroups, overseers and deacons. And I think it's important to notice that we often skip past this because we take it for granted. But even in this very young church, they have leaders. Sometimes people act as though they don't need the church or that the church leadership is just political and the early churches were simpler and more organic. But the reality is that in this church that started out with just a few people that met in Lydia's house, they quickly grew and developed leaders so that as Paul writes to them later, he addresses not only the entire church, but the leadership of the church as well. He addresses overseers who should help teach, equip, encourage, exhort, and sometimes rebuke. And he addresses deacons, which the word deacon is really just another word for servant. Someone who serves within the church in a special leadership capacity. In the book of Acts, this meant that the deacons were the ones who passed out food to widows and orphans. They helped care for the sick. And Paul knows that the Philippian church, as it has matured and as it has grown in this structured way, he knows that they grew like that because he taught all of the churches that he planted that you need to have overseers and deacons and leadership. And you can see that specifically in his letters to Timothy and Titus. Here in the introduction to Philippians, he doesn't say very much about it. He just assumes that it's fact. And I've said it before, but it's helpful to remember that just like churches are made up with difficult people, so are church leaders. It's easy to see in the New Testament that some people were appointed to leadership. We don't always necessarily hear very much about them. And I think it's very natural for us to assume that they were flawless. That the church managed to get along just fine because they were blessed with good leaders. And I don't want to knock our, we have good leaders at this church. But you know that none of us are perfect and that all of us have flaws and make stupid mistakes from time to time. And so I want to remind you that the church is organized this way really at the direction of Christ himself. It isn't as though these early Christians were super Christians. 
The things that Paul had to write to most of the churches in the New Testament to help them grow showed that their leadership had room to grow too. And it's easy to tell horror stories from churches we've been in and to talk badly about leadership, but there are no perfect leaders. And with the possible exception of the Philippian church, I don't think that there's a single church in the New Testament that I really would have wanted to join. But God has designated the church to be led by people imitating Jesus, even though we do it imperfectly. And we must be obedient to the Lord, both as leaders striving to faithfully serve and as those under leadership continuing in fellowship. And I believe that this is critical for the joy that Paul is writing about throughout the entire letter. That we need to be able to lead biblically with a servant's heart and that we need to be able to fellowship under leadership or the joy that God intends for us to experience in the church will not be present. This is part of why you cannot live the Christian life on your own. Because part of maturing is learning how to function in a body of believers. And so if you attempt to just read the letter of Philippians to yourself, you miss out on the fact that it's addressed to an entire church that is intending to function and serve the Lord as his body. So I would urge you as an application for this short sentence here to be in prayer for our leadership that we would serve like the Lord Jesus taught us to, it's much easier said than done. And I would urge you to be willing to serve as well. To recognize, Dad is not in this service, so I feel like I can tell this story about him. I'll probably mention it in the next service too. When Dad was first asked to be a deacon at the church that I grew up in until I was about 12, he said, no, I'm not old enough. He told the pastor, he said, talk to me when I'm 40. And the pastor actually respected that and said, well, I disagree with you, but all right. And came back to him a few years later when he turned 40 and he said, all right, it's time. When we're asked to step up into leadership, very often people look around and say, I I don't think I'm qualified for that. And there is an element where that's probably a good thing. If someone is eager to be in leadership, you maybe might not want them there. But sometimes that sort of humility and feeling of not being qualified prevents us from serving in the church as the Lord would want. And so I want to urge you to do two things this morning. Be in prayer about the leadership of our church and be willing to serve as the Lord moves in your heart and as people ask you to serve. Let's strive to function as a healthy body, united through Jesus Christ. This is the second time that he's mentioned Jesus Christ already. He says, Paul and Timothy are servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. All of this is made possible through the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's strive to make it true of our church as well. Sometimes we might have the structure, but sometimes we might not be thriving within it. Let's seek to be close to the Lord Jesus Christ and to not only have the outward form, but to have the inward function. Finally this morning, 
Paul moves on to the greeting that he addresses to the entire church. You can see it in verse 2. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul opens this letter with a prayer for grace and peace from God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he prays this for Christians who are already saved. Because we have an ongoing need for God's grace and peace in our lives and in our church. Grace and peace are both words that are used so much, like everything else really in this short introduction, we might forget their meaning, but they are vital to understand and to use with real conviction. Grace is the blessing of God's favor. And it's the receiving of good gifts from Him. Peace is not only the reality that God is not going to punish us for our sins because Jesus took our punishment. It is being welcome into rest and fellowship. Like the prodigal son who the father kissed and threw a party for, when we're welcomed into the Lord's family as sinners, it's not just that God is no longer angry with us, but that he positively loves us. And that's the peace that we have through grace. And the last thing I'll say as I turn to application is this, and I hope I've stressed it already. But in the space of two verses, Paul has mentioned Jesus Christ three times. He will talk about Jesus Christ a lot in this letter. And the church must never lose sight of the fact that our servants are servants of Jesus. Our saints are saved by Jesus. And we serve in the church for Jesus. God's grace comes to us only through Jesus. And that's why I asked for that passage from Hebrews to be read. Because Hebrews makes it clear that Jesus is the one who formed the church And as a result, we must trust him completely. There's no grace outside of Jesus Christ. And the reason it's only through Jesus is because apart from Jesus' blood, God cannot overlook our sins. If he did, he would be unfair and unjust. So as I close today, I want to urge you to think about these two verses from Philippians this week. Understand that God has given us this fellowship here in our church so that we can grow closer to Jesus Christ. And this is how we can begin to grow in joy by being faithful servants in the blood-bought church. I open this message telling you a little bit about Betsy Tinboom and how her faith was an encouragement to Corey. And I want to remind you That if that seems like a fantastic, unattainable type of personality, that we can be like Corey and grow in our joy. I think the Apostle Paul was one of those people like Betsy who would praise God for his chains because of his radical conversion. And probably he would praise the Lord for fleas too. And yet his instructions to the entire church were crystal clear. We need to rejoice too. And we can rejoice through Jesus Christ. So I would urge you this morning, if you've had a hard week, 
you should rejoice. If you're sick, you should rejoice. You should rejoice because your sins are forgiven. Rejoice because the Father loves you. Rejoice because Jesus died for you. And rejoice because you are God's child. And rejoice because God has blessed you with a family in the church. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, your scriptures offer us incredible hope. And yet many of us struggle to have this kind of joy. And so I pray that we would look to Jesus Christ and receive grace. And I pray that you would fill us with joy. In Jesus' name, amen.